morning, everybody. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at OEC, and uh, it's been a, a great pleasure and a great source of joy for me over the last couple of weeks to be able to be leading us in this uh, series in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this will be the third uh, in the sermon series, and then we're going to be taking a break, and we're going to come back to this in the next holidays. So uh, you can wake it in eager anticipation for that. It's wonderful that we can read a prayer like this and know that people have been praying this prayer for 2,000 years. It's great to know that not only is it a prayer that we can pray, but as was mentioned earlier, it's not just a, a, a thing that we recite without connecting, but it's a thing that we can think deeply about and that can grow us in our understanding of God and how we communicate with Him. And so that's why I've taken the opportunity each week to pray a prayer uh, from one of the great Christians of history, something that has been kind of shaped by their faith. Uh, and so we're going to do that again this evening as we bow our heads and pr- uh, pray a prayer that uh, George Matheson, a Scottish minister from a couple of hundred years ago, uh, wrote. So let's uh, pray before we jump in. Divine Spirit, illumine to us the words of the Lord. Show us the wealth of glory that lies beneath the old familiar stories. Teach us the depths of meaning hidden in the songs of Zion. Raise us to the heights of aspiration that is reached by the wings of the prophet. Lift us to the summit of faith that is trod by the feet of the apostle. And open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. Uh, Well, in uh, 1996, uh, Mark started his own church. He started it with a couple of his mates and they started the church uh, in a garage. And by 1999, the church that started with 10 people had grown to 350 people. Uh, early in the 2000s, they hit the early 2000s for their church. It was working in one of the most uh, unchurched parts of the USA. And Mark's church experienced just this phenomenal growth. It was a great thing. So great, though, that it caused some problems when you're Uh, You put together a structure for how you're going to run a church. There might be like a a leadership kind of level. But they found that they were just growing so fast that it was just slowing them down to follow the leadership that they'd made uh, for things. So they decided for a new leadership model, Mark was the figurehead of the church and therefore he was really going to be at the forefront and he'd be involved in most of the big decisions and he would really drive things. Of course, with uh, more power comes more opportunity when it comes to the hiring and firing of people. Uh, You can get the people that you like that maybe kind of boost you up and make you feel better about yourself and you can maybe push away those people who don't make you feel so good. And the temptation can be to think, well, if I'm the upfront person, if I'm the person that everybody knows as the figurehead of this church, uh, then in some sense maybe the story is really all about me. And as the ministry of the church grew, as books began to be written and sold, as speaking engagements went from things that happened in their town to going nationally to finally going internationally, eventually it turned out that everything and everyone that helped Mark, that made him feel better about himself, that made him feel more empowered and affirmed the things that he believed, those people succeeded, they flourished, they were told you were godly and good people. But anyone who might challenge Mark in his ministry, anyone who said, maybe we need to consider a different direction, maybe this is ungodly what we're doing, they were told that they were bad. And for some of them that they were ungodly and they were thrown out of the church. 
In late 2014, a new story broke when it was found out that the church had decided we need to have a, a New York Times best-selling book. So the latest book that Mark had wrote, uh, they hired a company to help make it more popular and that company bought 13,000 copies, which is how many you need to sell to be New York Times best-selling. And soon after that, uh, a number of former employees banded together over bullying and, and intimidation claims. And big questions were asked about, uh, is Mark really, sure he's growing a big church, it's doing great things, uh, but there is this long litany of people who've been destroyed by him. All of these things that are coming out about how he actually acted online. It became so great that in the end, uh, Mark was stood down from his position as lead pastor of that church. Now, uh, the optimist in me always wants to think the best of people, and I suspect for many people, maybe Mark as well, uh, when this thing happened, it started with the best of intentions. Uh, I want to do good things. I want to work for the glory of God. But the more popular I become, the bigger I get, the easier it is to think that it's actually about my glory, not God's glory. And so we also have to recognize, even when we're optimistic, that sometimes the kingdom that we can build, even in a ministry like this, even in one like Mark's, uh, was about him being the king of his kingdom, him who won the made the rules, uh, even when he thought he was worshipping Jesus in it. It was really all about him. Of course, before we put Mark out to dry, we ought to acknowledge that this is a story that in some way I suspect resonates with all of us. I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with my wife where at some point she says, you do understand, Tim, it's not all about you. It's hard to go beyond myself and actually thinking how things affect me. And in fact, when we read the Bible, that this is a Bible narrative as well. If you read John's Gospel, we see this very much for Peter. Peter is the one who finally gets it first out amongst all of the disciples. Jesus asked the disciples, uh, who do you think I am? And Peter is the one that says, you are the Messiah. And you think, yes, somebody finally gets it in the gospel. But then straight after that, Jesus says, well, I'm going to go on. And I'm going to suffer and die before I rise again. And Peter rebukes him. He says, no. He makes it clear that the image that Peter has of what this kingdom is going to be about does not involve suffering. It is his kingdom that he wants to come and Peter's will that wants to be done, so much so that he rebukes the very guy who he just complimented moments earlier. We see it again later at the Last Supper. Peter is the one who says, I will never betray you, Jesus. And John records that initially it looks like he means it. He's the one that John tells us, pulls out a sword and he lops off Malchus's ear and it looks like he's ready for a fight. He's ready for a rebellion. But then when Jesus heals the guy's ear, when Jesus puts out his hands, he's tied up and he is led away, Peter falls apart because his kingdom, his vision of what it is supposed to mean to follow Jesus, the great king of Israel, has not happened and so he lets go. Most famously, this is the issue we have with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We know them as the ones who have been feverishly committed to living their lives for God. They follow every rule that they can. They study God's word. They've eagerly been awaiting the Messiah that's been alluded to throughout the whole Old Testament. 
So when Jesus comes and he preaches that the kingdom of God is near, you'd think they'd be the ones who are over the moon. But instead we're told again and again in each of the Gospels that they lay traps for Jesus, that they talk behind Jesus' back, that they have plans to do things about it. Culminating in moments like Matthew 12, 14, where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand and you think, is this the moment where they get it like Peter? But instead, we're told this is the moment where they start to plot the death of Jesus, this man they now fear. When the Pharisees pray, it seems that they can't pray, thy kingdom come or your kingdom come, because they're so scared about my kingdom and what I might lose if Jesus turns out to be this Messiah. So as we move into the second real sentence of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is going to challenge his listeners and therefore he's going to challenge us about how we align ourselves, not only with our expectation of what it means to follow God, but what it really looks like to live our lives in a way that is focusing on God's reign and God's rule. And to unpack that at what he's getting at, we're going to ask ourselves three questions. What do we mean when we talk about God's kingdom? Also, how does God's kingdom actually come? What does that mean? And then finally, what does it mean for us for God's will to be done in our lives? Well, there are about 32 occasions in Matthew's gospel where the kingdom of heaven is mentioned, and there's another five occasions where they talk about the kingdom of God. They're largely synonymous. And so it's really clear that Matthew is all about God's kingdom because Jesus is all about God's kingdom. He talks about it constantly, particularly here in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we read through these different occasions, we get a sense, a feel for what Jesus is talking about. Uh, Before he even started his ministry, this is what uh, uh, we're told John says. In those days, John the Baptist came. He was preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, John is preparing the way for Jesus and he understands that Jesus is special in some very important way that for Jesus to come is like God's kingdom is actually coming closer to them. One chapter later, Jesus picks up on this himself. From then on, that is, after uh, John has been arrested and Jesus moves out into a regional area, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus himself understands that his arrival is being connected to God's kingdom coming. Then a chapter after that, he starts to give us a sense of uh, who is part of God's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Again, in, uh, later in chapter 5, some of the people who are just in and some of the people who are more deeply in. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the, that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get in. So here, the kingdom of heaven is a place where people seek to love and honour God with everything that they do. The theme that's running through all of these different things is that has an anticipation of Jesus as it talks about these different people, is that God's kingdom is that place where God's rule and God's reign are experienced. It's not so much that God's kingdom is, you know, two blocks down the road and if you go there, it's a place with the golden doors. No, instead it is a place where God's rule and God's reign is experienced. So the poor in spirit, we're told, are inheritors of God's kingdom because when they are 
poor in spirit, they understand, I can't do this by myself. I need God. I need him to rule in my life if I'm going to have anything that is meaningful into eternity. And therefore, they inherit God's kingdom. They understand God's rule and reign in them. For those who break God's law and teach others to do that, they are people who say, I want to wrench the crown from God's head and stick it on mine. They want to deny God's rule and reign. So if we're going to earn our way into heaven, then we can't, uh, we're going to have to follow the laws of God perfectly. But most importantly, this is where we see God's great love for us. When it comes to understanding God's rule and reign, we understand that we are poor in spirit. We understand that sometimes we get things wrong and we might even teach others the wrong thing as well. But God's love for us is that he sends his son Jesus, who lives out in his very body, God's rule and God's reign being followed completely and perfectly. Jesus himself is the king of the kingdom. He's the one who follows God's law to a T. Jesus is the one that has a uniquely personal and consistent relationship with the Father because they are always in community. They are always in communion with each other. And Jesus is the one who in coming into the world has brought the kingdom of God nearer to the people as he comes, not only so that they might see what it is to love and to follow God fully and perfectly, but that through his life and death and resurrection, he might offer them and us a new start with God. So in the most important sense, as Jesus teaches his disciples and us to pray, your kingdom come, Jesus himself is the greatest answer to that prayer. Heaven breaks into earth when God becomes flesh. The kingdom of God is right there before them and right there before us because the kingdom of the kingdom has come. And that as the disciples work out what it means to follow Jesus, the king of that kingdom, they're drawing nearer to God's wonderful kingdom. And as we understand what it is actually to follow Jesus, uh, God changes us as well. Uh, we pray that God might reveal it to us and God's spirit dwells in us and we become uh, more and more deeply part of God's family. So we can read this and say, well, that sounds great. It sounds simple. Can't we just do that? But the Bible story is that the disciples continue to struggle, that they continue to sin. And we know that's a reality in our lives as well. And this is where we see that the being part of God's kingdom is not just this a moment in the present. If I believe in Jesus, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I'm saved and I'm part of God's family. But also that God's kingdom is something that continues to be fulfilled, that continues to grow. Now, this is the very essence of Jesus' ministry. He comes to display the goodness of God's kingdom that people might see and know him but also he speaks about the future hope that they have, that God's kingdom is going to continue to reach out. So as Jesus speaks in the Gospels, particularly we see in, say, Matthew 13, two of the most famous parables that are all about this. First, we have the parable of the sower. You know, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this, that a farmer throws out the seed and that in different ways this is the word of God and it lands on people in different ways. Some people are like rough soil and nothing happens. For other people, it might take root and then it gets kind of crushed. For other people, it gets uh, killed by the worries of the world. But for some of us, God's word dwells in us and then we bring out a harvest. That is, over time we grow and out of that comes something 30 or 60 or 100 times better as God grows us to be more like him and uses us to share with others. Uh, Even better, later in Matthew 13, you have 
one of my all-time favorite parables of the mustard seed, that you have the tiniest of things that you can imagine that over time grows out to be this great tree that uh, provides shade for a whole garden. And that as we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying that God's church would continue to grow and to reach out and that God would continue to call more people. And you'll hear me say this regularly because it still blows my mind after being a Christian for 30 years uh, that here we are, 10,000 miles away, 2,000 years later, and we have been shaped and changed by this man, uh, the son of a carpenter who grew up in a backwater part of a town on the other side of the globe. But the glory of this is that God continues to see that tree grow out and for the branches to reach out and for people, new people, to find a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And yet as exciting as this is that God continues to reach out into every corner of the world, we know that the fullest, the greatest realization of this future hope is not right now, but it is looking in that day when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Look at this wonderful verse in Revelation 21. Then I heard a a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. And they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Friends, as we pray that your kingdom would come to God, there are these three senses that we're praying it. Firstly, it is a personal prayer. We pray that God would speak to us, that we would reach into our hearts and that he would change us and that we might draw nearer to him as we come to understand him, as we come to spend time in his word and pray to him. But we also hope that in God's grace and mercy, we might be part of this bigger thing, that the branches are reaching out and that we not want not only people to be able to gather here, but for God's church to go out and see people across Orange come to a saving faith in Jesus. And we do this because we look forward to that final day where God's kingdom will come, where all people will be judged and all people who put their trust and faith in Jesus will be told, welcome, good and faithful servant. God's work for God's kingdom is bigger than just me. And it's bigger than just the present. It's something that looks into the eternal future. And yet in the second half of the verse, Jesus does focus more uh, on salvation present than salvation future. When he says, Uh, Your kingdom come, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Now this can be one of those confusing things because we hear this and say, well, uh, why would you kind of ask God that his will would be done when God was the one who created everything, he sustains everything, and in a sense God's will is always done. He is sovereign over all things. But this is where we have this important little understanding of God's perfect will and God's permissive will. God in his perfect will, the one who created the universe, the one who keeps it running, is sovereign over all things. He is in control over all things. But God, because he loves us and he does not want us to be robots, gives humankind a choice, gives us some ability to make choices for ourselves. He permits us to be involved in some decisions. And this is where we see sin enter into our world. God permits us to choose and Adam and Eve, as a starting point, say, well, I want to wrestle that crown from God and I want to be king of my own decision-making. I want my will to be done. And yet again, in God's 
great mercy and his love for us, he still chooses, even though we have turned away from him, to call us back into relationship with him. God saves us and brings us new life. And for those who hear and respond to Jesus, we pray that he might shape our lives, that we'd be more like him, that we might live our earthly lives in a kingdom way. But that brings us to the next question of what does that actually mean? What does it look like? What does it mean for us to uh, do God's will in our world? I think one of the areas where a lot of people struggle with this is that we get caught up in two, two different ways that we see God's will. Uh, one is uh, throwing the dart at a bullseye and the other is the street sign, the direction sign. In the first picture, there's a small thing that you might be aiming for and you're only successful if you hit that tiny little dot in the middle. So we might see this as we're reading the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they gave, say, the Ten Commandments, and they are bullseye laws for God. So the Bible says, do not steal. And so I can say, well, uh, if I haven't stolen anything, I've hit the bullseye. But if I did steal something, I missed the bullseye, and therefore I've sinned. But the problem comes when we realize that things aren't always clear, things aren't always black and white, and sometimes we have to work our way through understanding things. I've known uh, friends who have wanted to have a black and white answer for everything. If I'm following God's will, then I need, to, I need a clear sign for everything. It has to be like the Monty Python videos where the great finger comes down and says, yes, do that. Uh, one a good mate of mine felt like he could not date a girl unless God gave him a clear and direct sign that that was the one for him. It didn't matter that she was already a Christian, that he'd spent a lot of time with her, that he knew her well, that her family was great, uh, that they served in ministry together. Unless there was that great finger coming down, nothing was good enough. I think if we get caught up in things like that, it has the appearance of holy living. We want to honour God with what we do. But actually, I think it it can encourage a a passive mindset where we don't actually think deeply about our decisions. We don't think about how do I live as a Christian in these different circumstances. And we actually sort of give up the responsibility God gives us to be uh, thinking through these things. Instead, when we turn to the wisdom literature in the Bible, books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, uh, we see more of a, a street sign picture of things. That is, in vast chunks of our lives, Uh, There isn't a particular chapter and verse that can tell us what to do. But instead, we need to use God's wisdom and think about kingdom ways of understanding things so we can make good decisions. It would be great if the Bible talked all about Netflix so I could decide, should I have this uh, subscription or not? Uh, But the reality is I might have to use my wisdom. Maybe Netflix isn't a problem and I just enjoy some shows and that's great. Maybe I realize there's content that I watch that isn't actually good for me, that it kind of brings up things in my heart and in my mind that aren't healthy for me and I need to distance myself from them. Or maybe I've realized uh, that I'm so committed to binge watching that series that I haven't touched my Bible in two weeks because I have a schedule at night when I get at home. So where I don't have a clear answer, I have to be wise in how I might honor God with what I do with things like that. Or maybe it's with my money. I can feel guilty if I go and buy something when I could give money to a charity or something like that. How do I think wisely about how God encourages me to enjoy the beauty of his creation but also be thoughtful in the way I use the gifts that he gives me? And of course, this is the very thing that Jesus picks up later in the Sermon on the Mount. 
because the Pharisees were really good at hitting bullseyes. They were the ones who were good at saying, you cannot murder, boom, that's a bullseye. But Jesus says, yeah, but if you're murdering people in your heart, then you're not, you're not really actually achieving that much. You need to think not only about the bullseye, but the general direction, the street sign, go this way. Not only do I not murder people, but I want to love people, even love my enemy. As we seek to be kingdom people in the 21st century, there are always going to be tough decisions that we have to work out that the Bible doesn't speak clearly about. There is not a chapter and verse about everything. But God gives us godly wisdom to help us make sure that even if we don't know the bullseye to aim for, we know the direction we want to go in as God's people. And that's why it's such a glorious thing that we can be a part of God's community here at OEC. Uh, that we're here to love each other and encourage each other and challenge each other, but sometimes also to rebuke each other. Churches like Mark's that I mentioned at the beginning of our talk end up happening and end up becoming dysfunctional when there aren't those support structures, when people aren't willing to rebuke each other, and when we end up deciding that we're following a man who is imperfect rather than the God who loved us and died for us. And for us as a church, we want to be a place where we feel that we can be like iron sharpening iron. My great prayer, one of my hopes for today is that uh, you would be more encouraged that if there's something that I say or Ed says or Chris says or anybody who's standing up the front that is unbiblical, uh, that you, you would hold us to account to it. This is why uh, we have some great structures. This is why we run OEC and U. If you haven't been along to that yet, it's a great opportunity to learn about how we have our church leadership teams, how we have congregational members who are a part of the overseers uh, like Tim, so that if there is something that is concerning you, if you're worried about or a brother or sister, you can speak to somebody confidentially and know that we care for each other, that we want to help each other seek God's will for our lives, and we want to be people who are all about seeing God's kingdom come and make a difference in Orange. Together we come together and we pray that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done, and we work at that by ourselves. And thankfully, we can work at this together. And we can work as we ask ourselves a very simple question that we'll finish with. Are you looking to fit God into your kingdom? Uh, this is so easy to do when we're in a brand new building. Uh, we're starting to get a reputation in this town because it's a great looking place. And we can think, we've got some great things going on. It is really all about us. This is a chance for us to build, build our, our reputation. You know, We could have a, some real clout. But is that just trying to fit God into our plans for who we are? Or instead, are we looking to fit into God's kingdom? Are we willing to do that even if that means we have to challenge some of those things that we love and we might need to let go of? Might it even mean that we have to have that hard conversation with our brother or sister in Christ whom we love but who we see going in a different and maybe an unhealthy direction? Why don't we pray about that now? Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that you love us so much that you broke into our world, that you entered into your own creation to draw near to us, uh, that your kingdom would come into our world and would become your son would become flesh so that we might know you and that in his death and resurrection that we might be part of your family. We thank you, Lord, that in your grace and mercy you help uh, and use us uh, to see your kingdom come to Orange and to reach out into our community. 
Help us to be Jesus' hands and mouth as we share the good news of the gospel with others. And as we do this, Lord, we pray that your will would be done in our lives, that you would shape us more like Jesus, and that you would shape us not only by your word and your spirit, but also by the body of Christ, your community, as we love and care for and sometimes even challenge each other. And so we pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus, your Son.